Welcome to the American Cinematographer Podcast. Go behind the scenes with today's top filmmakers as they discuss the techniques they bring to the art of motion imaging. This is Jim Hemphill, contributing writer for American Cinematographer Magazine, and I am pleased to welcome you to today's American Cinematographer Podcast. My guest today is cinematographer Chris Menges, ASC and BSC, a director of photography who has garnered international acclaim for both fiction and documentary work across a wide range of styles and genres. He established himself as a documentary cameraman and editor in the 1960s before operating on fiction features like If and Poor Cow. The latter film introduced him to director Ken Loach, who asked Menges to serve as director of photography on Kez. That landmark film led to a decade of alternating between fiction and features and documentaries before Chris left nonfiction filmmaking behind for good. To name the films that followed is to generate a list of some of the most exquisitely photographed movies of the last 30 years. Local Hero, The Killing Fields, The Mission, The Boxer, Michael Collins, and Notes on a Scandal are just some of his credits. He's won two Academy Awards and been nominated twice more, been nominated for ASC, BSC, Independent Spirit, and European Academy Awards, and he was the recipient of the ASC's 2010 International Award, among many other honors. Chris's latest film is an adaptation of the acclaimed novel Extremely Loud and Incredibly Close, which was one of the first serious literary attempts to grapple with the events of 9-11. The film tells the story of Oscar Schell, a New York boy whose life is changed forever by the death of his beloved father on 9-11. When Oscar finds a key that belonged to his dad, he becomes determined to find the lock that it opens in the hope that it will help him make sense of his personal tragedy. His quest leads him all over New York City, where he interacts with strangers who give him answers, though not necessarily the ones he was looking for. With its expressive yet subtle camera work that allows the audience to share Oscar's thoughts and feelings with profound immediacy, Extremely Loud and Incredibly Close represents some of Chris Menge's finest work to date, and I'm thrilled to have him here to talk about it. So, Chris, I, I assume this film came to you because of your previous work with its director, Stephen Daldry, on The Reader. Uh, what kind of working relationship did you establish with Daldry on, on that film, and what, what made it so fruitful? Um, I think uh, Stephen's actually... A very generous director, which is quite a rare thing. He's a very um, a warm man, a caring man, um, and it was a very fruitful relationship. In fact, the film was originally going to be photographed by an American, a New Yorker. It was going to be photographed by Harris Savidis, <laughs> but unfortunately, Harris. Um, became ill shortly before production started and in February of last year I, I went to New York um, to meet Stephen and uh, basically uh, to pick up the pieces from from Harris and I inherited a very a very good crew from Harris so I, I owe him a lot they were a wonderful bunch of people I worked with and so were you were you familiar with the novel at that time when uh... no I, I actually hadn't read the novel and um, it struck me um, when I read the screenplay that this was a very um, delicate story about a child um, and his anxieties and about his crises and longing and love and regret and guilt even about his father and missing his father and what happened in New York in, after 9-11. So it, it was clearly a very sensitive story. And um, 
we had to obviously work a strategy out how to, to catch uh, young Thomas Horn's performance because it was his first movie. So we, we had to find a way to catch his performance and give him as much creative freedom as possible. Yeah, I, I was interested in that. I was wondering what your role is as a cinematographer in relation to the actors in a film like this, where you have to facilitate performances and you've got seasoned pros like Tom Hanks and Sandra Bullock working alongside someone like Thomas Horn, who's never been in a movie before. Well, as far as Thomas was concerned, it, it was a question of observing and keeping the camera outside the arc of the performance. It was a question of lighting and shooting in a way that was the most supportive of, of his performance which is obviously a hard thing to do. But I'd worked uh, with uh, young people in uh, going back to my first movie, uh, cinema film that I photographed, Kess, where we learned to use natural light and to stay back on long lenses and try to catch the performance. So that's what I felt I had to bring to the story, to give him as much freedom as possible. And um, it was completely different to working on the reader. 9-11 is a very uh, emotionally difficult story to talk about and to catch on. So that's what I was trying to do. Right. Uh, both, both the book and the film you know, really try to put the audience in the head of the lead character, Oscar, who's a boy with a very distinctive point of view, since he's not only overcome with grief, but also might have Asperger's syndrome or some other kind of disorder and his point of view in, in the movie combines memories and random thoughts and fantasies. I'm wondering if in your initial conversations with Daldry, what kinds of ideas did the two of you come up with to visually convey that perspective? I think we felt that to make it as, as, as real as possible was important. And I think we felt at the time that the best thing we could bring to the work is to catch the performance a first-time actor, in a sense, to observe what was happening rather than dictate what was happening. That was one of the great things about working with the Alexa was that um, with the Codex recording system and the Alexa, you could run the camera for 50 minutes without reloading. So we were able to concentrate on Thomas's performance and Stephen was able to draw performance out of the child and the Codex recording system with the Alexa certainly helped us enormously. Had you had you worked with the Alexa before? No, but I had been to see Bob Richardson when he was shooting Hugo to see the state of art, so to speak, and I was very impressed. We shot Alexa Raw, and I thought both the color, the contrast, and the latitude was very fine, and... Um, we had an excellent camera crew with Gregor Taverner and Andy Harris as the focus pullers. And um, we had a huge support. The gaffer was Bill O'Leary and Tommy Pratt was the key grip and Brenda Malone was the dolly grip. All people that, that, that Harris said he just had chosen. So I, I arrived in New York in early February and we started working three weeks later. So I had a huge catch-up period in that time and we had a great uh, set from KK Barrett which was the family home, the apartment so it was a question of in a sense fitting in and trying to bring a simplicity to the work 
and to use the Alexa, you know, all the good things that the Alexa is very good at doing. So that was a very good experience. We also worked with Stefan Sonnefeld at Company 3 in, in the, the DI, which was a very good experience. So we had a huge backup and a very, I'm going to say, wonderful New York crew. So all those points, they all helped enormously, so to speak, catch the performance. And that's what we were trying to do, to try and catch Thomas Horn's performance and try and give him as much freedom as possible. Was shooting the movie digitally a decision you made, or was that something you inherited from before you came on the film? Having visited Hugo and, and always wanting to try one more trick, I was very excited by the chance to work with Alexa. And, and Harris had done tests before I arrived, so he was keen. Then when I had to take over, then I, I did lots of tests and also became very, very keen. So it's always learning new tricks is the important thing. I find it fascinating that you did this film not long after shooting a new picture for Ken Loach that, as I understand it, was completely analog, shot on 35 and Super 16 and even edited on a Steenbeck. Um, You're obviously comfortable with a wide array of tools, so what do you think are the pros and cons of film and the pros and cons of digital? Does one format work better for a certain kind of story than another? That's a hard one to answer, really. I love film, and I, I love certainly the digital experience from the Alexa. In the case of the Alexa, I, I love the long, um, the fact that, that a magazine runs for 50 minutes. I love, I'm very, I like the color, I like the contrast, and I like the lighting ratio. I appreciate the latitude. And the sad thing about film is that um, when I work at home, I used to always work with Technicolor in, in my grading, and there were timers at Technicolor who knew my work well, and they could effortlessly could grade a film. And the first answer would often be wonderful, but unfortunately, because you know the, the way the times are changing now, there are less timers available now. So in a way, sitting at the DI suite is almost a necessity so that you can talk through what your ideas were on a particular picture. And I think the slowly film is going away, and um, we have to embrace what is new. And so from that point of view, it was good to work with the Alexa and a, and a very good experience. So I think the opportunities of film are, are slowly vanishing. I know you often like to operate on your films. Did you do that on Extremely Loud and Incredibly Close? I mean, I find the discipline of telling a story, um, psychology, I suppose, of character, catching performance, and using light to bring life into the frame. Um, This information, for me, anyhow, is about looking through the finder, and it's the etched ground glass that gives you the information so that when, if this array around you, if you're in some panic, you can look at that image on the ground glass and actually work in your mind how the scene might be constructed, how the scene might be edited. And I actually got to be quite contrasting and quite with a lot of mood and feel within the character of Oscar Schnell, played by Thomas Horn. Actual fact, when it came to the DI, Stephen wanted actually more high key and more colorful than, than I originally shot it. I mean, these shit happens, doesn't it? Things happen and 
things change and the film that I shot on the Alexa had been quite dark and moody and atmospheric and in fact I tried to pull colour away but in the DI it became by request more colourful and brighter and so I suppose you could pay compliments to the Alexa that it was able to deal with our change in the making and the editing of the film to make it something more colourful and more high-key than I originally thought. (laughs) (laughs) So the Alexa managed to handle that change very well. It's that thing, isn't it? I remember shooting a film in Texas once when the director said, we need to make the courtroom scene in this film quite garish. And I said, oh, okay, what about using uh, warm white fluorescence that would kind of give a greeny blue? And and the director said, great. But when it actually came to the DI, the director said, oh, no. <laughs> no, I want it more normal. So the Alexa could have dealt that more easily than film could. And I find um, the use of colour, the psychology of colour, very important to storytelling. And I will always try to mix the colour or have different spectrums within the scene if it works for a scene, the psychology that thoughts it within the scene. So I always try to be, um, to do the bad things, really. Don't shoot with an 85. Do use different colours. Try to to find the psychology of the scene in colour and tone and, and light and darkness. So that's what I try to do. Well, in, in terms of uh, certain feeling being put across by color, one of the most striking scenes in the movie is a scene where Oscar visits a character played by Jeffrey Wright, and uh, there's a very stunning blue palette sort of used for Jeffrey Wright's office. I was curious what your thinking was uh, in that scene. How well, you because that um, on the scouts, looking for that office, we came to the Bloomberg building, um, and K.K. Barrett and I both said this is really quite interesting because it's got a kind of tension in, in the light and that, that was the way that particular office was lit on the light for 40 floors, this big tower. And um, it was obvious that we couldn't film the scene Jeffrey Wright's office uh, on location because we would have had sound problems and we would have had all sorts of production problems. So... KK and myself convinced Stephen that we should copy this particular office. And I said that we would use the same units that illuminated the office on a set that he built, JC Studios in Brooklyn. So the light had the kind of tension of this child at this moment when the answer to this key to his search was going to happen. And um, we copied exactly everything. And KK built that on the stage, and we use exactly the same light fixtures that were in its office. So I think that's, I mean, that's what we did. Um, in, in fact, when it came to the DI, Stephen thought it was too blue, and we had to wind up the tungsten. But I still think what we saw and offered to Stephen did work very well. It was just perhaps too. I, I, um, for me, I think we chose well. <laughs> <laughs> It sounds like you, you you know you couldn't do that on your on your own. You have to have a great designer like KK Barrett to make that work. Right. Well, it sounds like you collaborate very closely with the production designer, and I'm I'm curious a, a little bit more about that. 
relationship. A lot of the film was clearly shot on location, but then also there are sets for spaces like Oscar's apartment. And what um, talk a little bit about your your collaboration with K.K. Barrett and how the two of you work to sort of create those visual environments. Well, I always said to K.K., the best thing in the world for us would be if we never had a film lamp on the floor of where we were shooting that that we would use windows and practicals. Anything that would help Thomas be free of having, you know, light shining in his eyes, eye lights and and all of that stuff. So KK absolutely agreed that the freedom for the performance would be that we'd work on practicals and we would work on light coming through windows. Then, of course, there's all the things of color and set and darkness and lightness and choice of wardrobe and all these things are a vital part. Uh, You know, you dress somebody in a dark suit, you're not going to see them. You're going to see their face, but you're not going to see their bodies. So it's the same thing. In a wall, you need texture, you need something coming back to the lens. And the more the designer and and Anna Roth, there's so many departments, but the more that they can bring reflective surfaces to the camera, the less light you have to use, the more you can capture, put a child in the corner of a room if there's a reflective value, you're free. The idea is, for me anyhow, is that if the designer likes the scene with practicals, then I'm free, and if I'm free, then I'm much freer to capture performance. So it's a combination of, of many talents working towards the boss's intention, the boss being the director. Another interesting thing about the child's point of view in this movie is that it's it's a child's point of view of New York City. There's a lot of great location work in the film, and the city really has a different look and feel here than it does in other movies. When you're on location and trying to capture the truth of an environment you're in, do you think your documentary background informs what you're doing at all, or is it a different set of cinematic muscles? My my main preoccupation was to hide the camera and to catch life on the street for real. And we didn't quite achieve that, although I went on about it long enough to make every annoy everybody. But um, I remember in Washington Heights, there was a wonderful places to observe the real life going on around. And my thought was always to have an observational hidden camera catching the life of the street and then to introduce the renter and Oscar into those scenes. Well, it never quite happened the way I dreamt of. And I guess that way of working in New York for me comes back from when in 1980 I, I made a film, a directed and photographed a film in Spanish Harlem called East 103rd Street. And I would say that Probably 60% of the film was shot from a van using radio mics and using a handheld camera on a long, on the long end of a zoom lens and catching the, the real life of the street. And to me, that was um, invigorating filmmaking and, in fact, quite dangerous. We had to have two guards each side of the van just in case shit hit the fan. Mm-hmm. But it was extraordinary to hear and to record sounds on the street of dialogue and to catch those moments was uh, mind-blowing, really. So I tried to bring that 
to extremely loud. I didn't always succeed, but it's not for want of giving it a go. Mm -hmm. Well, the sort of recurring motif seems to be you trying to, you know, catch life as it's lived, even though you're doing a, a fiction film. Do you feel that shooting on real locations as opposed to sets makes that a little bit easier or, you know? What, I, what... I'm always excited by real locations because life's full of surprises of how people live their life, uh, you know, how buildings are put up and how people live their real lives. I, I always think that's something very rewarding. I think when you read a screenplay, it's not about shots and it's not about light and it's not about anything other than what is going on in that person's head. How do you tell that story? That's the important thing. The psychology of the characters in the story are the important thing. The other things come later. Mm -hmm. But certainly for Stephen, it was important, and it was important for me to photograph extremely loud in the simplest way possible. Well, it's, it's also interesting in that the movie's a period piece, yet it's the very recent past, unlike something like The Reader, did you think about that at all in terms of shaping the look of the film or or not? Because for Oscar, this is the present and therefore wouldn't necessarily be filtered through any kind of historical perspective. Well, certainly we shot the film in last year and we were seeing things that wouldn't have been like cars that wouldn't have been on the street on that dreadful day. So from that point of view, we went with what we had. So I don't think we, would, we were able to manipulate that. We just didn't have enough money. <laughs> well, the movie also, it takes place over the course of a couple of years, and the passage of time is presented with real clarity. I'm curious if you did anything in terms of the lighting or framing to alter the look at all as the movie progressed, or was that something that just was put across more through the performances and, and the costumes? I think it was, it was mainly all about performance, and obviously... There are moments in the story when Oscar has extreme anxiety and obviously it was very important that whenever possible the composition and the camera caught that um, crisis in his life. So, yes. And also, you know, if you kind of live in the moment then, then you're going to respond to that. You know, we didn't put marks on the floor. We, didn't, we tried never to say what, where, how. We tried to catch what was happening. It was about as I mentioned before, that, that created freedom for him. So I would always get mad if somebody said, oh, he didn't do that in the last shot, so he's got to do this and that shot. And I would say, who he? Mm -hmm. um, it's not about that, it's about performance. Right. It's keeping it alive. Right. Well, to wrap things up, I guess I want to sort of bring it back around to the beginning when we were talking a little bit about your relationship with, with Stephen Daldry. You uh, you took a detour into directing yourself for a few years with films like mm. World Apart and, and Criss Cross. And mm. I'm curious, did that alter your philosophy or working methods as a director of photography, or do you work pretty much the same way you did before directing But I yourself? think the one thing that DPs don't know about is extraordinary pressure directors are under. From all sides, there are a million questions. From all sides, there's doubt. From all sides, there's um, tension. Mm -hmm. And what they have to process is phenomenal. And if you haven't directed, you wouldn't know about it. And um, from my point of view, I think that makes me wiser in my job. I think it hopefully makes me 
want to jump and to try new tricks, um, I think there is no answer. There are many answers. You know, it teaches you to try to live in the moment and not become regimented in, in your approach to work. Obviously, movie making is about how personalities work together. Movie making is about many, many souls working on a project. And it's all about balance. But from my perspective, I think I learned a lot, particularly by one film that, that I directed, A World Apart, which is a film I'm immensely, dare I say it, proud of. Mm -hmm. um, because um, when I was a documentary cameraman working for World in Action, I was sent in 1962 to um, South Africa to report on apartheid. And what I learned shooting undercover with a Bolex on the World in Action program on, on what was happening at the time of the internment and the cruelties under the apartheid regime. What I learned from men served me profoundly well in the world apart. And one of the places we went to was in Bulawayo, which was then it was in Rhodesia, now it's in Zimbabwe. When we were sent to Bulawayo, we met many ANC comrades who assisted us in the making of our film, the World Election film. And they were the people who helped us many years later in 1986 get the context of the movie, A World Apart, Sean Slovo's script, accurately. So I knew when I was asked if I would direct A World Apart, I knew where to go. I couldn't go to South Africa because it was still under the apartheid regime. But I knew if I went to Zimbabwe or Odisha that I could find the people who would help us make the film. Do you think you're ever going to direct they, again? I'm only if I find a great screen. <laughs> That's the thing, isn't it? You never know what's going to work and what's not going to work. Mm -hmm. I've always tried to work on what I call learning stories. And sometimes you get it wrong. Sometimes you're lucky and you get it right. And if we knew the answer of what was a great movie, we would never work on a bad one. <laughs> but nobody knows. <laughs> Well, I think that's a, it's a great point to end on. Thanks so much for talking with me about the film. You're most welcome. All right. Thanks a lot, Chris. I really appreciate it. You're welcome. This has been Jim Hemphill and Chris Menges for American Cinematographer. This has been the American Cinematographer Podcast. Thanks for listening. You can find more podcasts, blogs, and exclusive ASC content by logging onto theasc.com. This podcast has been brought to you by the American Society of Cinematographers, a nonprofit organization dedicated to promoting the art and craft of cinematography.